If you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 8. We are beginning the last part of the first half of Mark. Make sense? So we, we've been in Mark since about February. And um, when, when we get through chapter 8, we're going to take a break. And uh, we're going to walk through uh, Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 through 47 for a few weeks, and then that will take us up to Thanksgiving, and th- or thereabouts, and then we will do, um, so we'll spend a week or two on Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, and then we'll pick back up in Mark after the first of the year, okay? So um, we're, gonna, we're getting close to the end of the first half, and, and as I said, then we'll take a break. Um, this morning we come to an interesting part of, of Mark. So we, we come to Jesus performing yet another really incredible miracle, feeding another large group of people, and then encountering religious leaders, the Pharisees, who continue to disbelieve in him, who continue to not have faith and, and exhibit their lack of faith in him. And then we'll see the disciples still struggling in their faith. And yet we're going to see really a a very big difference between the reaction of the Pharisees and the reaction of the disciples. And so our big idea for the morning is, is simply this. The evidence for Jesus is clear, but our eyes can be blinded by unbelief. See, So the evidence of who Jesus is and what he's done for us is clear. I think the Bible makes it very plain that Jesus was the Messiah who was to come. And, and even in Jesus' own day, it, it should have been painfully obvious to everyone that was around him that, that there was something different about him in the way that he reacted, the way he responded to people, the way that he performed signs and miracles that nobody else could, could do. It should have been obvious to them that something was very different about Jesus. And yet, Oftentimes, he encountered people whose hearts were hardened or who were blinded by their lack of faith and their lack of trust in who Jesus was. And the same is true today. We'll, we'll, so we'll look at the Pharisees. We'll see their reaction, their, their hardening of their hearts and, and refusal to believe in Jesus. But we're also going to see the disciples, men whose, who certainly had faith in Jesus, right? I mean, they, they laid aside everything that they had and and. Some of them literally walking away from family businesses and, and, and even family themselves and to, to follow after Jesus. And yet, even those who were following after Jesus had unbelief. We'll look at what that means for them and what that means for us. If you have your copy of God's Word, grab that. Let's stand. We're going to read through verse 10 right now. So we're not going to read the whole passage right now. We will read down through verse 10. As we see yet another miraculous event in the life of the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 8 begins, In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, 
they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them and he immediately got into the boat and went with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and open up your word. I pray you will speak powerfully through your word this morning. That you would expose in our own lives where we wrestle with disbelief and you would root that out. Do what only you can this morning. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, there is some debate over whether or not this is a retelling of the, the feeding episode, what we normally know as the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6. Um, there, there are a couple of good reasons to believe this is actually a separate occasion. For, for one thing, this happens in a different location than, uh, than the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. In fact, as far as we can tell, Right now, in chapter 8, Jesus is still in Gentile territory. Remember, Mark only records one uh, kind of series of events where Jesus leaves um, Judea and goes into Gentile territory and and heals people and and teaches them. And then here in in chapter 8, he actually performs this feeding of 4,000 Gentiles. There are different numbers of loaves that are, that are presented here. So in, in uh, chapter 8, excuse me, we're told that there are seven loaves and a few fish. In chapter 6, we're told there were five loaves and two fish. And then finally, there were different numbers of people. So chapter 6 tells us there were 5,000 men. Said that very specifically, 5,000 men, uh, excluding women and children in, in the way that number was presented. Here, we're told there were 4,000 total. And so we have a separate instance of Jesus miraculously feeding a large crowd with, with very little, just a, few, just a few loaves and a few fish. And I also think it's significant that Jesus does this among Gentiles. Now we talked last week or the last couple of weeks about how uh, God brings those who are far off near through Christ Jesus and how he demonstrated that by going to the Gentiles, going to people who were considered outcasts by the Jews and still showing, their, uh, showing their, his compassion to those who were far from God. And here we see Jesus continuing to show compassion. And we know that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. So we know that, that the, but we also know the hope and salvation that he brings is not reserved for Jews alone. Now, even in Gentile territory, these, these people had come from a long way off to hear him. We're told that he had compassion on them in verse 2. And once again, he tests his disciples. 
to see if maybe, just maybe, in everything that they've seen, they've, they, they've caught something. In fact, this is very similar to something they experienced not long ago, right? So there's a large crowd of people. They're a long way off. It's coming up to mealtime. And so Jesus says, hey, uh, let's, let's feed these people. He said, if I send them home hungry, in verse 3, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. Now you'd think the disciples might recollect, hey, we've been here before. I know the answer to this test question. And yet, look at verse 4. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Now at this point, if I'm Jesus, like, like I'm banging my head on a rock somewhere and just going, are you serious? We've been here. We've literally been in this exact same situation and you saw what I could do. But he doesn't do that. Instead, in verse 5, he simply asks them, how many loaves do you have? See, what I, what I found interesting is that Jesus shows compassion not just on the Gentile unbelievers, but he shows compassion on his disciples who tend to be a little dull. Hear me, church. That's good news. The fact that Jesus shows patience even when his followers should be farther along in their trust of him than they are is good news. So they go, they find out how many loaves they have. They come back, they say seven. He commands the crowd to sit down. Then we have almost a parallel of what happened in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. He sits them down, blesses the loaves, gave thanks for them, and tells the disciples to start distributing them. Distributing them, and he does. And see, don't, don't miss this. Jesus, once again, takes what someone has to offer and he multiplies it greatly for the sake of the kingdom of God. You know, if, if you remember back, if you can remember back before, say, April, when, when we were still able to meet together under what we would now call, I guess, normal circumstances, um, when, when we would still do things like pass an offering plate, um, when I, when I would get those offering plates brought back to me, what I would, I would always pray and I would, I would ask the Lord to multiply them for the sake of the kingdom. And, and in fact, that's exactly what we see him doing right here in Mark chapter 8. He takes what was offered. He takes the loaves that, that they had and he multiplies it. Then he said they had a few small fish as well and, and he does the same thing. He multiplies it. And when they... When everyone had eaten until they were satisfied, as verse 8 says, they collected seven large baskets. Now, now that's interesting. In the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, we're told they collected 12 baskets. But here we're told they collected seven specifically large baskets. So it's possible there was actually more left over here in the, the feeding of the Gentiles than there was in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. He fed them until they were full and there was abundance left over and then he dismissed them. He gets in the boat and goes with his disciples to the district of Dalmanutha. He has 
work once again with the Jews. He gets in the boat, crosses back over. Before we leave this section, though, I found this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon I thought was really great. He says, Let us bring our small talents, for when we bring the little grace we have to Jesus, he can so increase it that we will never know any lack. Don't miss that. Never think, well, I only have a little bit to offer. I only have a little bit of talent. I only have a little bit of time. I only have a little bit of, of treasure that I, that I can offer to the Lord. Never, never underestimate that. If you remember the story of the widow's mites, she gave all she had, even though it was very little. And yet her story is still told today. Because the Lord takes what we give and He multiplies it when it's given in faith. So they get back in the boat. They head back into Jewish territory. And almost as soon as He's there, He's met with the Pharisees who show contempt. Remember, Jesus showed compassion. The Pharisees show contempt. Let's just read these couple of verses starting in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. He then left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Now, we see this very interesting that the Pharisees come up and ask Jesus for a sign. Because they've seen plenty. Uh, remember, they were in the house when the paralyzed man's friends tore a roof, uh, a hole in the roof and lowered him before Jesus and watched as Jesus healed him. They've seen him heal other people. Some of them probably witnessed him feeding the 5,000 and maybe at this point they've even heard about him feeding the 4,000 Gentiles and, and what Jesus did among Gentile territory. They've, they've seen what he can do and yet here it says they demanded of him a sign from heaven to test him. Now what they're actually looking for is a sign from God, but but they refused to use the, the holy name of God, the, the name Yahweh. And so instead of saying, we, we demand that you do a sign from Yahweh, so we, just, we demand that you do a sign from, from heaven. In other words, they were looking for something. They were saying, show us something that will prove unequivocally that you are the Son of God. Show us something that would leave no doubt in our minds. This reminds me of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, I'll, I'll recount that for you quickly. You don't have to turn there. There was a, a rich man and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man lived his days in luxury, never giving a second mind to the poor. We're told at his gate, there sat this poor man named Lazarus. Eventually the Rich man and Lazarus both die, and Lazarus was a righteous man who goes to heaven, and, poor, uh, and the, the rich man was a wicked man who went to hell. And from hell, the, the rich man can see Lazarus in heaven. 
And he sees Abraham. And so he, he calls out and begs Abraham to send someone to his family. Abraham, please send someone back to my family to tell them because I was wrong. I don't want them to be wrong. And this is what Abraham responds in this parable. He says, they, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. They should listen to them. Lazarus, or the rich man, excuse me, responds, no, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If you just show them a sign, they'll believe. And this is Abraham's response then. And I thought this was so great. And it, and it matches up, I think, exactly with what the Pharisees were demanding here. Because in that parable, Abraham from heaven responds and says this, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In other words, what, what Abraham is saying in that parable is simply this. If, if we don't believe, given the evidence that we have, if we're not willing to put faith in what we know, then if we've hardened our hearts against that, then there's no amount of evidence that would convince us. See, some people in our world will constantly demand more and more signs. And you'll hear things like, well, if, if God is real, why doesn't he just prove it? When in fact, he's shown his existence to us in so many ways. What we see people doing is actually a, an echo of what Paul said would happen in Romans 1. And this is what, this is what he writes there. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now get this. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. In Romans 1, Paul will go on and, and we'll talk about many ways that people have hardened their hearts against God. But, but what he says right here in, in verses 18 through 20, Paul says, God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself all around us. And they've clearly been seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And yet, the problem is not that God has not made himself known. The problem is that people have hardened their hearts against what God has revealed. And we see that happening here with the Pharisees. They refused to believe. Even though Jesus was constantly performing miracles and signs that the Bible said only Messiah could do, they refused to believe. They had hardened their hearts. And, and the result of that, the end of verse 12, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, listen, I have, I have done enough. I, I've, I've shown you enough and you've not yet believed. And in verse 13, Jesus leaves the Pharisees. You ever been in an argument where you just like realize there is no point in continuing? 
Like I'm, I mean, you know, you and, and I'm not. I'm not saying like you've you've responded in a way that's ungodly. Maybe you're trying to be patient and listen, and feels like you're talking to a brick wall. And so at some point you just say, "I think I'm done here." Essentially, this is what Jesus has done. He is. He's tried to reason with them. He's tried to talk with them. He's shown them who he is, and yet they're they come back demanding, "Show us a sign." And finally, Jesus says, "There is. There's no use in in." continuing this discussion. It's not going anywhere. So he gets back in the boat, went to the other side to continue his ministry. And then in verse 14, we come to the disciples. And we see the disciples here really um, show confusion. So if, if Jesus showed compassion, the, the Pharisees showed contempt, the, the disciples show confusion, and that uh, they continue to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to teach them about the kingdom of God and, and trying to teach them about who he is. This is what we read in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Um, Keep in mind, we, we were just told that there were seven basket, large basketfuls left over after this last miracle. The disciples get in the boat, and they had forgotten to take bread with them. I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we see more of ourselves in the disciples than we would care to admit. And so, no doubt, they begin discussing, as, as we're told in Verse 16, the, the fact that they had no bread. And, and Jesus uses this, their physical reality, in order to teach a spiritual truth. And this is what he tells them. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves why they did not have any bread. So they're, they're hungry. They're looking for some bread. They're wondering, maybe they're even pointing fingers at each other. Hey, why, why didn't you grab some? I thought you grabbed it. And Jesus takes their physical hunger. He teaches them a spiritual lesson. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven was, was used as a yeast in, in bread. And that, if, if you know anything about the, the baking process that... Yeast spreads throughout the entire dough. That's what makes it rise. And so what, what Jesus is trying to warn here is that the teaching of the Pharisees and, and, and the teaching of Herod will spread. It's dangerous and it will spread and, and the disciples miss it. So finally he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend. Look, look at this series of questions that Jesus peppers them with here. Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, Do you, don't you understand yet? This passage ends kind of like the, the end of the book of Jonah where, where God 
hangs this question out to Jonah and it doesn't really resolve. In, in this case, there isn't a, a resolution because in the very next passage that we'll look at next week, he's, he's healing a man who is blind. So we leave this section with this question, don't you understand yet? To which the answer on the disciples' part, I think, is a glaring, obviously not. See, reminds them of what he's done. Reminds them of what they've seen. Reminds them of how he's, he's teaching them these truths about the kingdom of God and, and about who he is as the Messiah. And they're still not getting it. Now, at this point, there's a really important question for us. What's the difference between the Pharisees and the disciples? Both can be a little bit dull. Both are obviously missing the point. Both keep looking for Jesus to do more to prove himself. What's, what's the difference? I think the difference is really simple. The disciples have faith. Even if they don't get it most of the time, and, and most of the time they don't, even when, when they're utterly confused, even as, as Jesus is pointing out here, when they don't understand, they have faith. They keep on following Him. You, you've heard me say this before, and, and, and it's so true. Faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. The, the thing that we're judged by in the Christian life is not how many verses of the Bible you have memorized. It's not how often we gather together. Those are good things. Those are things that we're commanded not to neglect. Things that the Bible even commands us, right? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Those are important. But the thing that we're judged by in the kingdom of God is not how well we perform. It's whether or not we trust. Whether or not we have faith. And sometimes we might pray just like the man did whose son was dying and Jesus asked him, do you believe? I remember his response. Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, I, I believe as, as much as I possibly can, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, look, I'm trying to believe, but, but there's, there's still doubts creeping up, so help. The disciples, the thing that sets them apart from the Pharisees is they believe. They have faith. They trust Jesus as their learning. They trust Him as much as they can. And they keep on following. What, what's the difference between believers and, and non-believers? Is it that we're 
the, the followers of Christ are live such exemplary moral lives that sets us apart? Well, not always, right? I mean, I've never met a, a, a believer that was holier than, than another believer. I've met a lot of believers that were more self-righteous than non-believers. The thing that sets us apart is faith. We, we follow after Christ, and when we stumble, we, we allow Him to pick us up, remind us who we are in Him, and we keep on following couple of verses just as we begin to wrap up here that will help. 2 Corinthians 5.7 For we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't know about y'all, but that's become real to me in these last few months. We walk by faith, not by sight. There's a whole lot going on that, that we don't understand. I'm, I'm a person that generally likes to kind of be in control of what happens and there's a whole lot of stuff that's been out of my control. Not a, not a big fan of that. Not, not a big fan of uncertainty. I mean, you know, I, I, like everyone else, I, I, I like to say I'm open to change until stuff starts changing and, and then I'm not really okay with it anymore. In these days where, where we've as I've said from the beginning, and when all this started in March, that we, we want to trust that God's at work in ways that we can't even see. So much of that, we walk by faith, not by sight. We, we walk by faith, believing that one day we're going to look back on this and we'll see how God was at work in our lives, in the lives of our, those in our communities, in ways that we can't imagine. We keep walking by faith, not by sight. And then Hebrews eleven six, as I said earlier, faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. It says this, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Hebrews 11, after this, you'll remember begins what we might call the Hall of Fame of Faith. Just a, almost a bulleted list of people throughout the Old Testament who had faith in God. Many of whom never saw the completion of what they were hoping in. And many of whom, uh, th their lives ended in really unpleasant manners here, and yet they were commended for their faith. Now, some of them had personal lives that were absolute train wrecks. I mean, think, about, think back to our heroes in the Old Testament. Abraham, who um, tried to pass off his wife as his sister two different times and ended up sleeping with his uh, wife's servant in order to, to kind of further along the plan of God, which caused all kinds of chaos in their lives. King David, who had an affair with a married woman and then had her husband sent to the front line so that he would die in order to cover it up. These, these are our heroes of the, of the faith. People whose personal lives we would say, I would, I would never encourage you to copy, right? And yet who, despite their shortcomings, had faith in God. And were commended because of their faith. Because 
Faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. So I remind you once again of our big idea for the morning. Listen, the evidence for Jesus is clear. He's proved himself over and over and over. We have the stories of what he's done in Scripture to encourage us. We have those who've gone before, both those that, that are talked about in Scripture and those in our own lives who have followed after Christ that are continually pointing us to him, showing us the, the reason for faith, which you remember is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith becomes real when it's put into action and trusting in Christ Jesus. And so, as for, for the believers here this morning, let me talk to us first. As we saw in the lives of the disciples, even those of us who are followers of Christ, even those who can say, like the disciples, I have, I have forsaken everything for the sake of the kingdom of God, we might still, on some days, wrestle with unbelief. All of us have Mondays. All of us have those days where, where we just wonder and, and begin to question, is this true? So on those days, what, what do we do? Well, we respond in faith. I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today I would challenge you to take that first step of faith. You know, the Bible tells us that all of us have committed sins, meaning breaking God's law, doing things that He's commanded us not to, and, and that sin separates us from God. Because of our sin, we're, we're told that the thing that we deserve is eternal separation from God in a place called hell, but that God loved us so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to be the Savior. To live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved on the cross. and That if we will trust in Him, we will put our faith in Him. Our sins can be forgiven. We can have the promise of eternal life beginning right now and Be restored to God and pursue His calling on our lives. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ Jesus, if you're watching us online and you've never trusted in Christ Jesus, let me invite you to do that today. And you can just simply pray these words to help you frame what that looks like. My life is broken. I realize it's because of my sin I need you. I believe Christ came to live, die, and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. So forgive me. I turn from my selfish ways and put my trust in you. I know that Jesus is Lord of all and I will follow him. If you're here in the room this morning and you prayed that for the first time, in just a few moments, Siona's going to come and play quietly. I'd love to visit with you about what that means. If you're watching us online, there's a number on the screen right now, 575-446-3663. You can text that or call that and get back with you. We'd love to 
visit with you about what that means. Maybe you're here and you've never followed through in believer's baptism, which is a, just a tangible representation of what happens in the moment that you trust in Christ Jesus. I'd love to visit with you about baptism. Celebrate with you and with your church body as we symbolize what Christ did for us. Or just simply close with these two words, have faith. Have faith. That's the thing that makes all the difference in the world, all the difference in the kingdom of God. Have faith. Even when it doesn't necessarily seem like it makes sense. Even when, as you might read those questions that Jesus asked the disciples in Mark 8 and respond, no, I don't understand. I don't understand what God's doing in my life right now. I don't understand what He's doing in these days. Have faith. He's not done with you yet. I know that because you're still here. He's not done with me yet because I'm still here. And even as we walk this journey of really, really weird days, God's still at work, shaping and molding us into the people He wants us to be, shaping and molding us into the church He wants us to be, in order that we might be a light for the gospel to Alamogordo. Have faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. I thank You for this great story that we looked at that shows, once again, Jesus' miraculous provisions, and yet... We see even with that, it wasn't enough for some. Maybe we encounter people in our daily lives who have hardened their hearts against the truth of God's word and refuse to repent of sins and believe in Christ Jesus. I pray we would have patience. We'd have compassion. We'd, we'd believe that maybe just like Saul of Tarsus, no one is too far gone. We'd have patience as we listen to complaints. We'd have patience as we listen to a lack of faith. We would boldly and gently share the truth of the gospel. Most of all, I pray for those of us that are followers of Christ that we would exhibit what it looks like to live by faith, not as people who are striving to keep some holy checklist of things that we have to do, but living our lives in obedience because we believe and because you've saved us. For those watching online or maybe even here in the room who've not yet trusted in Christ Jesus, I pray today's the day. Pray this is the day they turn from sin, trust in Jesus Christ, and you move them from death to life and from darkness to the light of the kingdom of God. Pray you would call them to take that step of faith, putting their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, work powerfully this morning. Move in our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.